Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome to the OnScript podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Cheltenham in the UK where the kids are playing nicely in the background. I was going to ask them to be quiet, but then I thought, WWJD, so they run free. I'm co-host of the podcast with Matt Bates at Quincy University in Illinois and Drew Johnson of the King's College in New York City. Before we get into the episode, I'd just like to put out two requests. First of all, is there a listener out there in internet land who has an interest in possibly volunteering to help us with social media. That's an area where we could really use some help and support. Uh, Perhaps you even know a creative way to kind of link things together so it's not super onerous. Um, But anyway, I'd love to talk to you if you're interested. If if you just want to email us at onscriptpodcast at gmail.com and then we could probably get in touch with you. Uh, We may be able to even get you a free book a few free books along the way uh, for for helping us out. Um, also, if you'd like to help with the podcast through monthly support of just 2 or $5 a month, it really makes a difference, and you'll be in the running for occasional offers. You can go to onscript.study forward slash donate to find out how to do that. Okay, Drew and I host this one with John Walton, who we're interviewing. Enjoy, and remember, the best Christmas gift you can give someone is a link to the OnScript podcast. Welcome to the OnScript podcast. Our guest today is John Walton. John is professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College in Illinois and has a keen interest in all things ancient Near Eastern. He's the author of quite a few books, including The Lost World of Genesis 1, Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament, and he's the co-author with his son, John, of the book we're discussing today, The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, Covenant Retribution, and the Fate of the Canaanites. I'm here with my co-host, Drew Johnson. Hey, Drew. Hello. And John, we're really glad to have you here today. Welcome to OnScript. Uh, joy to be with you. So, John, you and your son, John, uh, co-authored this book, which suggests to me that some measure of your love for uh, things ancient Near Eastern has uh, successfully passed on to him. So while a lot of families maybe sat around reading the Bible together, did you guys sit down and, you know, after dinner with Pritchard's uh, ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, just read them aloud together? How did it get passed on? (laughs) No, it didn't quite go that way. But really, ever since John was in his teen years, um, we've discussed the books that I've been writing and talked about them. His input was often less in ancient Near East, more in just logic and thinking and biblical interpretation, theology, philosophy. Those are areas which he enjoys more, but he recognizes the importance of ancient Near Eastern backgrounds. Oh, great. And I'm wondering if you could tell the story a little bit of how how you got into the study of the ancient Near East and then kind of leading up to how the idea for this book was hatched. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started to recognize the importance of the ancient Near East for interpretation in my late college years and uh, into my master's program. And then I went to a PhD program at Hebrew Union College where it focused both on Hebrew Bible and cognate studies, the ancient Near Eastern backgrounds. And so I became more um, aware of it, more trained in that area as I took Akkadian, uh, Ugaritic, etc., and uh, started to have some interest in using it for biblical interpretation. It led to my doing my doctoral dissertation on the Tower of Babel, uh, that combined, again, both Hebrew Bible analysis and uh, ancient Near Eastern texts. So that's kind of how I got into it. Uh, in my dissertation work, I was frustrated that it was so difficult to gain access to so much of the ancient Near Eastern material or even know what was out there. And so uh, the uh, the first book I wrote when I got out of my PhD 
was called Ancient Israelite Literature and Its Cultural Context, where I went through the various genres and talked about the similarities and differences and what uh, what literature was out there to make that uh, assessment. At that point, I thought I'd probably end up doing more commentary work, but in the mid-90s, uh, IVP came to me and asked if I would be the general editor for the IVP Bible Backgrounds Commentary. And I finally decided to do that, and that's what really launched me full scale into the uh, comparative studies with the ancient Near East. So uh, that's led to uh, many of the books that you mentioned, the whole Lost World series especially. The Lost World series itself is intended to take a, um, a biblical idea or text that uh, reflects some modern concerns and modern problems uh, today, of course, like things like the age of the earth or evolution, you know, origins, and to try to address those in an accessible way using both the information from the ancient Near East and a close reading of the Hebrew text. That's really the, the basic idea of the Lost World books. Uh, the Lost World of the Israelite Conquest I had never intended to do. But my son John was, uh, you know, spending time uh, on campus, and uh, he was suggesting that there were some things that needed to be said about that that hadn't been said. And I said, well, you should write an article on it. So we started researching and writing, and I was feeding him material, and uh, then it got too long to be an article. And so um, we decided that it probably needed to be a book. And we talked to IVP about it, and they said, yeah, that sounded like a good book to them. At that point, it still wasn't a Lost World book. But as we did our work with the ancient Near Eastern backgrounds with the Hebrew text, it's finally occurred to us that, well, yes, this was a Lost World book. Uh, so that's, that's how it came about. Um, he was the main writer, and really lots of the ideas are his ideas. Some of them he had to persuade me of. Uh, and so we had long conversations. Uh, we also um, worked together in that um, I was providing him with ancient Near Eastern materials. I was um, evaluating uh, Hebrew text, and we were talking about Hebrew words, Hebrew forms, uh, verses, and what they meant. And so that was uh, constant interaction. And uh, that resulted in the, the book that we have that really has a combination of ancient Near East and biblical text, as well as some issues in philosophy and theology, which are more his expertise than mine. Hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering, like I think everybody is, is uh, first of all, what does President Trump think of this book? Uh, and then secondly, uh, who is the ideal reader if it's not President Trump? Yes. Um, uh, President Trump hasn't tweeted on it yet. I think it's the only thing he hasn't tweeted on. Um, so, so really, I, I don't know. I suspect he's still in chapter three where it talks about goodness, and he's wondering about all of that. Um, the, That's hilarious. The, in terms of the audience for this book, you know, again, the hallmark of the Lost World series is, is its accessibility to um, an audience that's not technically trained. That was very difficult with this book because the issues are, are complex and manifold. And it was very difficult to keep the same level of accessibility that we had. Nevertheless, we, we tried. We did our best to make it as accessible as possible uh, to basically a, a lay audience who are good thinkers, um, don't have Hebrew or ancient Near East training, but uh, are, are very interested in thinking through the issue and trying to understand it better. Uh, John, you know, one of the mantras uh, that I've heard from you before and saw again in this book was that the idea that the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. So I'm just wondering, I think that's a kind of maybe one of your your driving messages as you speak about ancient Near Eastern things. I'm wondering if you could explain what you mean by uh, to communicate by this distinction about the Bible being for us, but not to us. Well, it is something that I repeat a lot and that a lot of people repeat from me. Um, and it represents a lot of what we're doing in the Lost World series. Uh, the idea that it is for us is what most Christians who take the Bible seriously believe. They believe that since it is God's revelation, it's not revelation that was supposed to begin and end with Israel. 
It was revelation that continues to have significance for God's people, uh, God's people, the church today. So that's the for us part. Most people have to be a little more persuaded uh, that it's not to us. That's not hard to do. It's easy to come up with examples. Uh, it's not in our language. It has a lot of cultural aspects that we don't intuitively understand. And therefore, the idea that it's not to us uh, can, be, can be supported. So those, those are the two aspects. Uh, but of course, that means that if we want to get that message that is for us, we have to go through the parts that are not to us. And there's the challenge. Yeah. So when it comes to the book of Joshua, which obviously is the focus of your book, who do you think the book of Joshua was written to? Uh, we try not to distinguish. No, I should say it differently. We we don't feel that we can always distinguish which Israelite audience it was written to. Uh, to say, well, was this written to a, a Bronze Age audience, an Iron Age audience, a Persian? post-exilic audience. Uh, those kinds of things are still, I think, too complicated to sort out with any confidence. As I talked about in Lost World of Scripture, uh, I believe that the composition process is a long, complicated one that involved ancient uh, narratives, ancient records, ancient understandings, but yet probably took editorial shape gradually over centuries and probably not finalized till late. Now, at that point, you can't sort those out and say which parts of this had a, an older Bronze Age or early Iron Age uh, audience, as opposed to which ones reflect a post-exilic uh, kind of set of interests. So I, I don't think we can set that. We don't know enough to be able to sort that out. As a result, I just think in terms of an Israelite audience, largely Iron Age that covers a lot of territory, um, and in that kind of cultural context. So in entering that cultural context, of course, we as readers, if this is not to us, have to adjust our expectations and assumptions when we come to the text. So uh, as, as you both worked through the book of Joshua and thought about the conquest, what are two or three kind of major assumptions that moderns bring to Joshua that you think need demolishing? Mm-hmm. Uh, several of them have to do with the, the larger genre and trying to understand that. We've generally assumed that the Canaanites are being punished for sin, uh, that this is God's judgment on them, and therefore the conversation takes the line of uh, talking about that God is just, and God is good, and God is moral. And we found that all those categories uh, we're problematic, uh, not because we think God isn't those things. It's just trying to describe or understand exactly what the implications of that might be or how we even sort out the nature of God's goodness or morality or justice are difficult things. But in terms of genre, there's also issues of the rhetoric of ancient documents and that's not something that we easily recognize, especially those Christians who are in traditions where they say we have to interpret the text literally. Um, and that kind of approach, it's sometimes uh, not intuitive to figure out when something could be rhetorical, uh, even though the, the presence of metaphor is well recognized in many other places. So those are some of the things that we felt... Uh, American readers, modern readers, uh, typically didn't pick up that we had to try to bring into uh, bring into focus. Yeah, I often say to my students that rather than reading the Bible literally, we need to read it literarily to understand the kind of literature this is. So that gets at the genre issue. But of course, there's also culture and uh, ancient New Eastern background, which is where you're driving. So it's really helpful. Yeah, um, John, of course, uh, I don't know who wrote this, uh, whether it was you or your son, uh, but I do want to quote to you uh, from page 35 here, uh, and I'm sure you don't remember exactly what's on page 35, but... I've got it uh, open in front of me. Oh, excellent. So the Johns, uh, one of the Johns said here, quote, faith, Sounds like a trust... <laughs> I could call you the Waltons, but I figured, you know, you don't want to be associated with the show. Right. Um, our mountain. Uh, quote, 
faith trusts that God is wise and that therefore his purposes are good, even if they don't seem that way in any system that we can understand. God does not need to be defended. He wants to be trusted, end quote there. Now, uh, if you had a student approach you, which I'm sure you have had students approach you on these kind of issues, and they raise the question, they say, you know, I've been going through uh, the Torah and the historical books, and I don't see the kind of faith that you're describing here. I actually see people who push back on God. They don't trust him. Uh, So I'm thinking here of Genesis 15, uh, when Abram says to God, well, how, how can I know that you're going to give me this land that you've promised? Or when Moses says, um, no, I don't trust this plan uh, to bring these people out. Um, and then God has to convince him with signs. And then Gideon as well is an obvious example from the judges. Um, that doesn't seem like uh, just trust me. It seems like uh, somebody saying, no, I don't trust you. And then God saying, okay, well, let me give you voracious, historical, rational reasons uh, to trust me. So how do you square that with this idea that we just need to trust God uh, when it comes to his goodness? Well, certainly the examples you gave are ones where people were having trouble trusting God. Uh, Job is another great example. Uh, and that's that's human. It's natural for us uh, to want more information, to want more explanation. Uh, but of course, trust is what steps in where information fails. And therefore, Wanting more information requires less trust of us. There's no doubt that biblical characters often had trouble with trust and often had trouble with faith. But again, I find that when God tries to interact with them on that count, sometimes he just says, okay, here, here's why you should have more faith, or here's a little more information. But lots of times it's trying to persuade them that they do just need to trust him. And I take that as sort of the whole message of the book of Job, uh, that you don't get explanations, you have to trust. And so since we can never know all that we want to know, and God doesn't suggest that he's going to offer us uh, detailed explanations or uh, uh, information that can help us understand, if we're going to have trouble understanding, we have to trust. Yeah, can can I come back on the Job question because this is something that uh, was raised as I was reading because you use um, Job early on as a as a possible template, I guess, for thinking about suffering uh, and possibly care more for this idea that you devote to the ban or you devote to separation or however uh, you want to translate it, and we can talk about that later. But I wonder if if Job is the best interlocutor for this uh, only. If, only if for, uh, and you may correct me, I may have misunderstood something, but Job is an individual who as an individual suffers over time. And Job kind of explores his suffering, the advice offered by various people, and then God's intervention, whatever you want to call that, uh, in 38 and beyond of Job. Um, but uh, Haramorfield de- deals with uh, death at the, at the greatest extent and maybe displacement at, at the least extent. Uh, but the death in harem warfare, or the judgment that most people want to ascribe here, is not focused on suffering. Uh, death is just what happens. You know, you don't suffer in the electric chair. Well, I take it back. You probably do suffer in the electric chair. But it's over very quickly. Where Job is this over time, what, is ha- what happens to people over long-term suffering? I wonder if maybe uh, the proper inlo- interlocutor here is not Job, but his children, who, uh, who are judged if you could say in this way, judge that they're going to die, it happens very quickly and they're out of the picture uh, and whether that's fair or not. We, we weren't trying to use Job as a template for Haram or for the conquest as a whole. Uh, we brought Job into the picture to talk about the idea of retribution principle, the connection uh, between judgment or not even judgment, I'm sorry, uh, between suffering and wrongdoing. And that's why we wanted to bring Job into the picture, because Job helps us understand that um, you can't always just assume that if someone is suffering, they must have done wrong, and that this is God's uh, angry action against them. That's the main point we wanted to make by using Job. So in one sense, it was a way to disconnect things that people automatically connect. You can't just look at what happened to the Canaanites and say, therefore, that must have been something they did wrong. Um, nope, it's Job that helps us to break that, that way of thinking. Uh, and that's the really connected to the retribution principle as a whole, uh, 
which we talked about in a chapter or two. Yeah. Do you, do you think that um, uh, Joe being a, a covenantal character and the Canaanites not being a covenantal character would rub against that? Well, or do you Job take Job is, to be a covenantal character? Yeah, okay. Job isn't a covenantal character. They, they very um, intentionally set him outside of the Israelite circle. John, um, it, one, of, one of the things that uh, I think for a lot of listeners um, they're going to be struggling with, of course, is the, the ethics of what happens in, in the conquest. And I know that your book in, in various ways addresses that. Um, I, I just want to quote something from page 29. Um, and what you say there, one of you uh, say there, is that the text does not affirm that the killing of Canaanites is good because killing the Canaanites is not the objective of the conquest. The objective of the conquest is to fulfill the covenant. Okay, so um, one of the things that that raised for me is that if, if, if goodness is in terms of, if we understand goodness in terms of objective, so here the, the fulfilling of the covenant, how do you separate out the goodness of fulfilling the covenant from killing Canaanites as a good act, uh, because it seems like killing Canaanites was part of fulfilling the covenant. Um, so, so Israel had to fulfill the covenant, so they killed Canaanites. So, is is your point that we as readers are to not focus on that because it's a peripheral issue, or what's how, how is that not seen as a good act according to the logic of Joshua? What we try to do on various levels is to say the issue here is order for the covenant. Uh, the covenant, God's, um, God's relationship with Israel, uh, and that uh, required order, and Torah brought that order, and the land needed to reflect that order because Yahweh was going to dwell there. And so that covenant order needed to be established. Um, that covenant order could be described as good in one sense, even if it's only in the sense that it's something God wanted. Um, and so the covenant order was the objective, um, and Israel was supposed to bring that. And that covenant order could not be established when the Canaanite, when the Canaanite identity was thriving in the land. And so we talk more about the idea that they needed to eliminate the Canaanite identity from the land for the idea of covenant order, for the health of Israel. Uh, because as the text says repeatedly, if the Canaanites are among you, you're going to quickly fall away from the covenant. So it's, it's not so much, it's not about destruction of people. It's about eliminating the identity, the Canaanite identity, so it doesn't influence Israel. That's the order that was required, and that's how we approach it. So, so could you unpack a little bit um, the distinction between identity and let's, you know, straight up saying destroying Canaanites? Why are you saying destruction of Canaanite identity, and how does that play into your argument? Well, uh, remember, of course, that we have corporate identity in the ancient world. And so there's an identity connected to that people group or those people groups, because, of course, there are several different people groups. Uh, the idea of their identity reflects on all of their beliefs that were contrary to what the covenant called for. And that's the identity that needs to be removed. That doesn't mean that um, the identity could not continue to exist outside the land. And it doesn't mean that people had to be destroyed in order to um, eliminate that identity. The example that John came up with uh, is the in the aftermath of World War II, uh, there was a definite attempt by the Allies to eliminate the Nazi identity. Uh, that meant certain things. It meant the symbols were destroyed. It meant the buildings that that kind of represented that identity were torn down. It means that the leadership there was actually killed uh, because they were holding on to that identity. But it doesn't mean they went chasing down everyone who had been in any way associated with the Nazi party and killed them. Uh, it was the identity that needed to be eliminated. And so in that sense, uh, it's the influence of the identity that's of interest. 
Yeah, uh, thanks for that, John. Uh, that actually is a helpful clarification that I, for some reason I failed to pick up on uh, quite as clearly as you articulated it there. Um, the In the section on page 34, you, the, yeah, no, there's lots of interesting stuff going on right there. Um, but the idea that suffering can be dispensed without merit, um, which I, I think everybody who teaches Hebrew Bible for a living, uh, we all uh, you know deal with these questions. Um, but I wonder, uh, Deuteronomy 28 seems to strongly argue for a, a national quid pro quo kind of view of Israel's behavior in the land. Um, if you do this, and it's nationalistic, not individualized, but if you all do this, then things will go well. If you don't, uh, then there's some horror shows that are going to happen. Um, but it also seems to be part in, interwoven in the integrated logic and repeated logic of the Torah that it, I know you don't believe that there's, this is due punishment for Canaan, but people who read it this way would say, I am punishing Canaan. And if you do these things, uh, then uh, you will also be punished as well. Um, and that's kind of taken for granted as part of the logic of, of Torah by, by many biblical scholars. And so it seems to be that the future, uh, the stability of future justice in the land of, of Canaan is predicated upon this current punishment that's going to happen. So, uh, so in other words, they see the punishment for themselves, which becomes the archetype for the punishment that they will eventually suffer. And so I wonder if we, uh, and this is kind of a broader question, but if we give up on that logic... Uh, what holds justice in the land? And I'm, and I'm also would point out here. I think you dealt with it a little bit later in the book, but Deuteronomy nine four and five, you know, where it's like, do not think in your heart is because of my righteousness that God has given us this good land. It's not because of your righteousness, for you are stubborn. It's because of their wickedness. Um, Certainly, in the stipulations of the covenant, there is the quid pro quo that's set up. But of course, that has to do with Israel's faithfulness to a covenant. That's not talking about how God generally works in the world, just bringing suffering when it's when it's deserved, and you know it's it's again ordering the covenant and the faithfulness that God's requiring of Israel. Um, secondly, the uh, we had a whole chapter, I believe, that specifically showed how Israel's exile, because of their sin, very clearly is not the same at all from the Canaanites being driven from the land. Uh, again, with Israel, uh, clearly they are indicted. The, uh, the sins are named. The judgment is identified. This is what God is doing. That is exactly what we would expect if there is a crime that's being punished. And it's exactly what we don't find in the discussion of the Canaanites. Uh, so that was one like, of the Can, I, uh, can that... I interject here? Sure. Uh, just because I know many listeners will be going, well, what about Leviticus 18, where it clearly says these are the crimes or these are the things that the, the people of the land, it says the land, but of course, land is there as metonymic for the people. Um, so how do you deal with that in the book? Right. Uh, we, we, we spent a good deal of time on those maybe half a dozen passages that make it look like God is punishing the Canaanites for behavior. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's a, a very extensive and technical discussion, so I can't get into it here. But there, mm -hmm. there's a couple things going on. First of all, we connected that to the rhetoric of how you generally um, describe the people that you're going to fight against. And we found examples of this throughout the ancient Near East. Um, it's kind of like trash talk. Um, you characterize them in the worst <laughs> possible ways um, because that's that's just how people who are going to f fight one another talk. Uh, they're not talking about uh, sins that are documented and documentable. And it's also talking about the idea that the Canaanites have to be moved out because their practices that are connected to their identity will have a negative impact on Israel. But again, those are complicated questions. They were among the biggest challenges that we had as we did this. And we've tried to spend considerable time on them in the book to demonstrate what we're getting at. Yeah, and, and I think um, I think it was helpful how you went through those texts. And of course, some people are going to wonder about Genesis 15, 16, which talks about the idea that the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its fullness, or um, you've got a different read of that. That might be a good one to to just unpack briefly. Um, but also, um, 
sorry, two questions here. Um, it, it might be helpful for our listeners to know why we're even talking about the idea that uh, that that the Canaanites aren't being judged for their sin. Why did why does that matter for your overall argument in the book? Again, I think that it matters for the overall argument because there's the question of whether we need to defend the justice of God, that what He's doing is something that they deserved, and therefore this is an act of judgment, and therefore God gets off the hook. Um, and we don't see that that's the issue at all. Uh, sometimes it's connected to the idea that, or the belief that harem means utterly destroy, well, since our translations sometimes render it that way. But of course, we make a strong case that that is a mistranslation of the term and a misunderstanding of the concept. And so, uh, generally, the apologetics literature dealing with the conquest is always focused on the idea that the Canaanites are being punished for their sin. So that's why we had to take great pains to uh, push things a different direction. In terms of Genesis 15, 16, uh, we found several anomalies. And again, Jonathan was um, identifying these and pushing me on them as we worked out the Hebrew together. And it ends up that there are four or five terms there that we haven't captured correctly. I mean, it all starts with this idea that we should translate avon, Hebrew avon, as sin, the sin of the Amorites. Um, and uh, when we looked at the broad use of avon, certainly sometimes it looks like it refers to sin in other passages. But if you note the patterns that we find in Genesis, uh, Cain says that his avon is too great for him to bear. That doesn't mean his sin or his guilt. It means what God is doing about it. Um, the Lot and his family are told, don't go back to Sodom because then the avon of the city will overtake you. That's not the sin will overtake you. That's what God is doing about it will overtake you. We find similar instances in the Joseph story where the avon uh, doesn't represent the person's sin, but what God is doing. So we looked at Genesis 15, 16, and we said the avon of the Amorites is not referring to sin that the Amorites have committed. It's referring to the idea that God is bringing this calamity, loss of land, on them, which, of course, is what he's been talking about. Yeah. yeah. So, so is, is part of your point then, okay, if I'm getting you correctly, uh, so you're wanting to push aside the... Or, or argue against the idea that that God is being justified in his actions by the text. You know, that the, that the Bible is giving a kind of rational uh, account of, of why God is, is justified in asking Israel to, to remove the Canaanites. And you're saying, no, the Bible actually doesn't even give us the raw materials to make that evaluation. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes. Okay. All right. Perfect. <laughs> uh, I'd like to switch. <laughs> All right. Let's switch gears briefly. And uh, we're going to do a lightning round, if that's okay with you, where we ask uh, some very important questions. And uh, I'll try. You have about, yeah. Okay. You have about six to seven seconds to answer each one. Wow. Does that sound good? Wow. Okay, we'll see. Okay. First, first question. Uh, I'll start off with this one. Knitting or crochet? I don't do either. Okay. You mean which one I like? Uh, it, it, it's an open-ended question. No. This is reader response. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't do either. All right, then. Uh, well, how about uh, what biblical or theological work do you, would you say has impacted you the greatest or maybe even recently has impacted you? Um, recently is easier because uh, it's been a long career by this time. But uh, <laughs> recently, I've really enjoyed uh, Ian Proven's uh, Seriously Dangerous Religion. Oh, yeah. I, I, I love that book. Okay, uh, what's one of your favorite works of fiction? Oh, uh, I really like anything by Juliette Marillier, um, particularly her Seven Waters series. Uh, all right, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, I, I'd really like to be smarter. <laughs> to, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm doing what I love doing, but you always face your, your limitations. Um, that's why I find co-authoring so, so um, invigorating and important, because then you can combine your strengths uh, to make something better. 
Great. What's something interesting about you that we wouldn't learn from your CV or the books that you've written? I was a table tennis champion in my youth. Oh, congratulations on that. Oh, you should you should probably try ping pong if you're good at table tennis. Uh, they're um, the same thing, yeah. <laughs> okay, I did not write this. I'll just warn you right now. Uh, a penguin walks through the door right now wearing a sombrero. What does he say and why is he here? He says, you don't know me, but I've read your books and I would like to talk about them. Will you come on a podcast? <laughs> All right. All right. Here's a, a speaking of um, talking. Uh, do you ever talk to yourself? And if you do, when do you talk to yourself and what do you typically say? No, I don't talk to myself. Um, what do you find most troubling or, or challenging about uh, working in the Bible or any biblical passage that you find most troubling? Well, always what's most troubling is our limitations. We uh, even though we're gaining so much knowledge of the ancient world, there's so much that we don't know. Um, there are so many Hebrew words that we don't know precisely what they mean. And without those nuances, we're, we're fettered in our attempts to understand text. John, do you ever count your steps when you walk? Occasionally. <laughs> wow. I thought that was a out of left field question. That I'm glad you asked. Um, if I'm trying to decide between two different routes, between two places that I go often, I might count steps to figure out which one's faster. Uh, wait, wait a second. Wait, uh, Matt, Matt Lynch, do you ever count steps when you walk? Uh, I I don't. Although I tend to, I sometimes walk in a pattern, like avoiding uh, certain cracks in the sidewalk or something like that. But there's it, no there's no superstition behind that. But it's just a pattern thing. Um, but, but John, I'm curious, you know, like this, this is getting inside your, your mind a little bit. Like, do you, have you worked out certain pathways on campus and, and you've got them written down or what? Oh, I don't write them down, but I am definitely a person of routines. Okay. And so I figure out what's the best way. And I go that way religiously. Excellent. Uh, final question. Is there a uh, product that you would willingly be a spokesperson for, even unpaid, uh, that you use? My seven seconds is up. I can't think of one. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Uh, you've, you've done well in the speed round. Um, you know, the last question you've left hanging, well, maybe you could come back to it. But we, we typically ask our guests a, another question that I'd love to hear your take on. And that is, what's one idea uh, or school of thought in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Wow. There are several, actually, and coming from different directions. Um, the um, I've, I've become, I always have been, but increasingly frustrated with the um, epistemological I consider it almost arrogance that often underlies the source theory, our ability to identify and reconstruct sources and their times and their schools and their ideologies. Uh, I think the epistemology is deeply flawed. And Berman's new book on inconsistency in the Torah uh, fleshes that out very nicely. So that's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, I'm constantly frustrated with the insistence that Old Testament is redemption history. Um, I don't see that as anything that the Old Testament is really concerned about or that spends time with. Um, and therefore, I think it misconstrues the Old Testament and in the process uh, makes it something that it isn't and misses what it is. Now, some of that's going to be covered in my book that's coming out next week, Old Testament Theology for Christians. Okay, do you want to give a teaser as to, okay, if it's not redemption history, what um, what do you see as the, the heartbeat of the Old Testament? I just did a paper a couple of days ago at a conference where I suggested that uh, in place of redemptive history, we should think in terms of what I call an Emmanuel theology. God is with us. Uh, I see that established in Genesis 1 and 2. I see it in the tabernacle in the temple. I see it uh, stretching through into the New Testament, whether it's the incarnation or Pentecost, and of course, into new creation. The idea of the presence of God, I think, is uh, a more sustainable common theme 
that is actually identifiable in the text, in context, in the Old Testament. Oh, great. Well, that sounds fascinating. We'll have to look out for that book. And just as a note, you mentioned Joshua Berman's book. What was the title of that, just for our listeners? Inconsistency in the Torah. Oxford okay, great. Publication. Josh has been doing some great work over the last couple of years. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Um, I had a question on moral knowledge, because this was, I think, another of the provocative claims in the book. There were quite a few, actually. Um, you On page 98... Uh, I believe it's page 98. I have a note 98 to 100, so somewhere in there. You say that providing us with moral knowledge is not its purpose, the Bible's purpose as Scripture. Consequently, any moral knowledge we can derive from it does not carry the authority of Scripture, but rather only the authority of human wisdom. So I'd be curious for you to unpack that statement a little bit, um, maybe say what you mean and don't mean by that. Actually, Jonathan had to persuade me of that. Uh, it doesn't represent what I've thought for a long time, but he did persuade me of it, uh, that given the hermeneutic that I use, um, and which he also adopts, uh, that that's really where you have to end up, uh, that it has other purposes. If you find the authority of the text, for those of us who value authority, if you find authority of the text in the illocutions of the author, then you have a very serious task in front of you to determine what the illocutions specifically are according to the genre and according to their ancient context. And once you work all of those details out, here we couldn't do it in detail, uh, but once you work those details out, that's the conclusion you end up with. If people want to get more about that, uh, I have a book, Lost World of Torah, that should be coming out about a year from now. Um, the manuscript is largely written. Right now, Jonathan's editing it, so I may still have some work to do. <laughs> so uh, just on that point, so that you mentioned the illocutions um, uh, of Scripture, and is the idea that, um, that, that the Bible has certain communicative purposes that uh, are are not moral, and therefore we can't we can't go down that road when we're trying to uh, build a moral philosophy or something like that. Uh, that all of that's involved. The the Torah was given to the Israelites uh, to uh, to help them uh, establish covenant order as they lived in proximity to God's presence, and uh, certainly order involves having a moral system. But the Torah's intention, elocution, is not to actually provide a moral system. It is to help them understand order, and it's situated in their time, in their uh, covenant context, and in the idea of sacred space as they were uh, accountable to it. And so to somehow change that around to understanding it as a Morality, of course, we know that there's a whole lot more involved in the Torah than anything that can be called moral. Uh, and so we have to deal with all of those. And that's what the lost world of Torah is going to get into in great depth. Hey, John, you've used this word order quite a few times here with uh, respect to the, govern, uh, the covenant. Are you using that word? It sounds to me like you're using it in, in the same way of like uh, the theology of Egypt, Ma'at. Uh, is, is that a similar concept or a paired it concept? It has some overlap. It certainly does. Um, the, uh, the idea that there's a certain status quo that is to be um, pursued, that it is ideal, and that people have some responsibility to do it. It certainly has overlap with ma'at. Although, again, covenant order is not going to be shaped the same way that ma'at order is. But it is that concept. And of course, I believe that it's something that that's what God was doing when he created. He was establishing order. And that's what the temple was for. And that's what the rituals did. And that's what the covenant provided. And, you know, all of those things. Is there a, a moral valence to order, though? I mean, so so I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you, you've got you're making a case that there is a purpose for the Torah. First of all, couldn't there be multiple purposes? And second of all, couldn't there be a moral valence to the notion of order itself? There may be, a, I don't deny that there could be a moral valence to it. That is that there is morality, moral behavior, as it is perceived in the context of the people, is part of order. But that valence can change 
for different societies at different times. The Bible isn't trying to give a universal morality for all people for all time, although some of the aspects of covenant order would easily be adopted as what any people would hold as moral. The question is, is the Bible revealing a moral system? And that's where we say no. Um, so I, I was very interested in, and again, I'm thinking of things that are going to be floating through listeners' minds, because uh, we have a lot of Bible scholars and seminarians and uh, pastors that listen, amongst others. Uh, and it wasn't prominent in your book, in the discussion, uh, but I, I know that some are going to jump to Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 7, and the final reification and the end of Joshua, that use of the hornet of Yahweh that gets sent into the land. Um, and I wonder, uh, because I've always read it a particular way, and of course you've shaken up a lot of things that I've always read a particular way, which so success, uh, but I, I wonder... Who do you envision, uh, according you know, to your reading of Joshua, who is actually doing the killing there? Like, who is stopping the heartbeats of those people involved in those texts? Um, and how does this tie into this kind of, it might be a related topic of the, uh, the Passover plague uh, as well. Is, is there a problem with God as a divine warrior who is actually doing the physical killing here? I think the appearance of the commander of the Lord's army at the end of uh, Joshua 5 uh, suggests that this is God's action, but yet he uses Israel as his instruments. So even though uh, Israel is doing some of this killing, um, the whole idea of the, of the theology behind it is that this is God's activity. Um, I don't even like calling it the conquest. I know we put that in the title. We had to because that's what everybody calls it. But this is this is an order-bringing event for the covenant, for God's presence to be maintained. Um, you know, you could talk, when Jesus sends the disciples to get the donkey for the triumphal entry, you could certainly portray that as an act of theft by the disciples. But the text leads you to think otherwise. If the guy comes out and says, what are you doing taking my donkey? They say the Lord has need of it. You know, they're, they're just the, the delivery people. And so in that sense, they're the instruments, but the Lord has need of it. And that's the point. Uh, when we looked at the ancient Near Eastern material, the motif is the Uman Manda, the invincible barbarian. And the whole point of the Uman Manda characterization is that people are not capable of, of conquering the Uman Manda. The gods have to do that. And this is the same kind of idea here. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Uman Manda because it, it flowed into my very next question, which was the question that we all face from a parishioner or a student at some point is, uh, and you used ancient Near Eastern history quite a bit uh, comparatively to, to understand what's going on here. Uh, do you think that before we had, uh, before we pulled the tablets out of the ground, uh, that that Hebrews and subsequently the church just really misunderstood what was going on in these texts? Well, certainly they didn't have the information that they needed to reach an understanding of the text in context. After all, if you can't penetrate the ancient Near Eastern world, then there's stuff that's going to be problematic and um, that you, you, you just will not have any chance of understanding. Uh, but that's true also if you don't use Hebrew. And so for those long eras when the church was using the, Vatican, um, the, um, uh, the Vulgate, um, without the Hebrew, there were things that they certainly would never understand. But yet the reformers come along and they say, you know, we really need to use the Hebrew text. And so there was new information on the table that previous people had not had. And it's the same thing here. But I think also what we have to recognize is that most interpreters throughout the history of the church have not really been interested in trying to recover the illocutions of the author in their context. Could you just define illocutions briefly? Uh, illocutions, again, what the intentions of the author were, what they wanted to do with their words. Uh, the, as many people today, many of the writers in Christian history were already believed they kind of knew what the truth was. And they used the Bible to undergird what they believed the truth was. 
they rarely even asked the question, what would this meant to an Iron Age Israelite? And in many ways, they wouldn't have had any ways to recover that if they wanted to. Yeah. John, we're uh, coming to the end of the interview here, and I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, you, you started the book talking about a conversation you had with your son, Jonathan, about the ethics of the Canaanite order making event uh, or conquest, as it's popularly known. And and I'm just wondering, you know, if someone, if a student asks you, you know, how can you, from the, you know, on the basis of this text, claim that this God is, is good or just? Um, I know that you had some pushback against those very questions, but yet it persists, I think, for a lot of readers in their mind. Um, what's your response to, to that student who comes up to you? I would say that we're in no position to try to assess God's justice based on our own criteria and our own beliefs about what that would look like. Um, that's, that's nothing that we can do. Uh, the same is a problem when we try to do theodicy. Um, we've, we've got no right to do theodicy because God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Um, God is working out his plans and purposes, and it's not, you know, we're, we're not, he's not accountable to us, and we can't stand in judgment of him. We don't know enough. And so I think that would be part of what I would say. Furthermore, um, God is working at uh, what I call his mission to establish his presence among his people. And this was a big step in that. The land is Yahweh's land. And Yahweh is going to dwell in that land. And he's establishing his presence. That is a good thing for God to be present among his people. It's good for everybody. Um, and that's why we talked about harem, not as utterly destroy, but as an act of eminent domain. Sometimes there's the greater good of, um, of everybody for, for instance, when Chicago wants to expand the, the runways in the airport. And this is going to be the good of all Chicago, okay? But that means some people are going to be displaced. They're going to be asked to move. They're going to have to give up their homes. And that won't be fun for them. But is it good? Well, they don't experience it as good. But it's good because of the larger uh, idea that's uh, being pursued. Well, John, we really appreciate you taking the time. I think many of us have read your books. It's uh, nice to hear your voice, uh, hear the explanation. This book is rich with lots of uh, fire-starting uh, arguments and details. It's uh, worth the time perusing. And I think uh, no matter how people walk away from it, uh, there's no way they can't be challenged and learn uh, and, and re-understand the conquest and the order-making event uh, in Canaan after reading it. So thank you very much for joining us for this podcast. Well, it's, it was great to be with you. And as always, we just want to put more information on the table that people can use as they think about difficult passages. Yeah. Thank you, John. You're welcome. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.